0: At the end of every cannabis season, plants are cut low on the stalk and taken away to be processed. What remains is a small nub coming out of the soil. Below, in the soil, is a very much alive and active cannabis root system interacting with mycorrhiza, microbes, and nutrients. Other than being a trophy showing how thriving a plant was before it was cut down, there's not been much use for the plant's root ball in modern cannabis medicine. Until now. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Recent videos have included my presentation at the Viridian Staffing Job Fair describing a proven strategy to find your dream career in cannabis, as well as the Sustainable Greenhouse Design Panel I moderated at the Imperious Cannabis Expo in Phoenix. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Natasha Riz. Natasha has a Ph.D. in experimental medicine from the University of British Columbia and also holds a Master of Science and a Bachelor of Science in Human Nutritional Sciences. Natasha has over 15 years of experience as a health and nutrition researcher and has published seven first-author peer-reviewed publications, two first-author reviews, and co-authored eight peer-reviewed publications. Natasha is a researcher and product formulator specializing in cannabis and other compounds that target the endocannabinoid system. Natasha is co-founder of Riz Remy Skincare and Therapeutics, where she designs topical products for pain and inflammatory conditions, as well as beauty. Today we're going to talk about Natasha's new paper entitled Cannabis Roots, a traditional therapy with future potential for treating inflammation and pain, as published in the Journal of Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research and co-authored with world-renowned cannabis expert Dr. Ethan Russo and David Remiard. Welcome to the show, Natasha. Well, thank you for having me. So your paper is so much more enjoyable to read and accessible than many others I've read in science. And and in some parts, it feels as much like a history text as a scientific paper. What's the difference between a paper like this one and one that is simply reporting the results of an experiment?
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) I don't know about simply reporting the results of experiments because lots of work goes into reporting that. But what's different about what we've created here is we're, like you said, we're going through the history of how cannabis roots were used. And then we're trying to find clues from uh, newer research to incorporate some of that together to show that the active compounds that are found in the cannabis roots, um, even though they haven't been studied specifically from the cannabis roots, there is some other research we can put together. Whereas, Um, And when you're looking at a research study that's reporting on something new or a single compound, um, they're really going into the details of the experimental methods. And usually they're showing multiple ways of doing an experiment to show that they're actually can convince you and prove that their hypothesis is correct. Whereas this um, may be more enjoyable to the non-scientist reader because it is a nice history of how the roots were used and then does a brief summary of some of the literature showing, um, again, like how these active compounds would have been used um, for treating inflammation or pain or other different conditions. And then we summarize... the research by showing uh, methods of application. And it is interesting you say it's different than other um, papers because when we first submitted it, um, it was actually to another journal and they didn't really understand. (laughs) So they thought even the title that we weren't actually talking about the roots of cannabis. They thought it was like a folksy like, Oh, getting back to the roots. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And I had written a lot of, um, there was even more information about, um, kind of forward steps of how to use the roots um in recipes and things like that and they even made kind of a snarky comment like oh this reads like a reader's digest uh, paper oh <laughs> like, man
0: that's a diss that's not cool <laughs> no
1: and, and it was just they didn't understand the the paper and so and that's part of the reason why it took us a while to get this paper published um because really, Ethan and I started on this project, and my husband, um, Dave Remillard is also an author. So the three of us uh, have been working on this project for about a year, and this is really how Ethan and I actually became uh, friends and colleagues, was back at um, ICRS, of so the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting in Vancouver in 2013. Um, It was in Vancouver and that was my first time going to this meeting and my first time meeting Ethan. And so when we first met, um, I said to him, "Well, what are you doing with the roots? Because he was still with GW Pharmaceuticals back um, at that time. And he was like, Natasha, what are you talking about, the roots? And so we had a discussion about it, and I'm like, well, my husband, David, he's he's a legal cannabis grower in Canada, and he we've been using the roots to make topicals. And so he was fascinated by this, and Ethan went back, and he went through the literature, and he put together this really nice uh 30 point power page or PowerPoint uh, presentation going over the whole history of the roots. And then he sent that to me and he was like, Natasha, we have to write a paper about this. And so that's really why the first part of the paper really is an overview of um, the historical use of it. And it's a lot of quotes. And um, so we had to put that together as kind of a story and start um, putting it in some different themes. So yeah, like, for fever, for inflammation, for skin burns, for hard tumors, even for childbirth. Um, there's many different ways throughout history that people have been using the, the roots. And I know there's people who are making products these days, but in the scientific realm and in the academic realm, no one was talking about the roots. So we felt it was really important to get this information put together, published, um, to start uh, getting more interest in actually pursuing some of these compounds.
0: You know, um, gosh, I've got a bunch of things to say. So so let's see, where where to start. So number one, going all the way back to um, the roots, you know, when I was talking to people uh, about my excitement about interviewing you on this show, I too had to clarify because I said, oh yeah, I'm doing a show on cannabis roots. And they're like, didn't you already do the history of cannabis with Sunil Agarwal like in episode <laughs> five? And I'm like, yeah, 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 not those kind of roots, the root ball. And then you could see this look of blankness and then they're like, cool, <laughs> you know, because, you know- um, um, because you know, mostly you know, we throw away root balls, but but after your paper, I think people are going to be um, using them a lot more. And then um, and then also, uh, it's fun to hear you talk about your your meeting of Ethan because um, I got the other side of that story. He and I were at lunch, <laughs> and he all like, yeah, Natasha asked me about root balls, and he says I lit up, and I said, and he saw like I knew right away that we'd be friends, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because he he's you know had an interest in root balls too, but had never really actually had a chance to dig into it, so. Right on, so you know since you're reaching back so far into ancient medicine for a lot of these texts, um, were there some ailments that were you know enshrouded by outdated language that you had to do secondary research just to figure out what they were saying they were using or the root ball to cure?
1: Yeah, a little bit, and I tried to clarify, especially when um, they're referring to hard tumors. Um, we weren't sure if they were referring to cancer or um, more like an abscess or a sore or a type of ulcer that has like tumor, hard tumor-like properties. Um, so we were pretty careful in how we interpreted those um, interpretations of how are they, they were using the roots. And even um, when we looked at some of the compounds in the roots um, and went into uh, newer studies with um, cell culture experiments and animal studies, um, it, it, they didn't really find much anti-cancer activity with these compounds so we were careful with um, how we covered that part of the roots just because we know there's so many potential anti-cancer properties uh, with the cannabinoids and other parts of the cannabis plant Um, but the roots might not be the best for anti-cancer properties. Um, The area where it was very exciting and i see a lot of potential for the roots is more for uh, topical use so putting it on top of your skin and using it to treat um, inflammatory conditions redness um, arthritis and also gout there's numerous mentions like it was almost hard to summarize it all without just going on and on and on about how often um, the ancient uh, medicine makers were using cannabis roots to treat gout Um, so that was um exciting to read about especially anyone who's ever suffered from gout or um, tried to find treatments for it Uh, a lot of them don't work that well so and actually I should bring up when I was uh, uh, so when Ethan and I were first working on this paper he invited me to Patients at a Time in Baltimore last year to speak about it. And so that was great. I got to um, do a talk at the conference, met a lot of amazing people. Um, But this one man came up and he was a cannabis farmer and he came and talked to me after and he was telling me that he doesn't consume any cannabis and he was working on a cannabis farm and he was like i wasn't touching any of the cannabis my only job was to handle the root waste and so he said he was handling all the root waste and they were keeping some of it um in the freezer just on the like hey this might have some properties um and he said just by handling the roots his gout and his his toes had gone away and he had made that connection and he was just like blown away after he saw my talk because he was like oh my god goodness, just by handling them, my gout had gotten better. And so that really intrigued me. And so I kept talking about the gout. I personally don't haven't experienced um, any of these types of treatments or um, like, I don't suffer from any, uh, gout or inflammatory conditions, so I can only go on what other people are telling me. But I definitely think it's uh,
0: an application of the roots that's worth pursuing. Right on. So <clears throat> I know this next question is big, so I'm going to kind of set you up for it and let you go here. So, so you know, one of the things that struck me immediately in reading your paper is that you know you're talking about a whole new community of active compounds than we're usually talking about with cannabinoids. Uh, you know, usually when I read papers, I'm pretty familiar with the active components. But most of the active compounds in the root are new to me, and it's really exciting to have some new healing attributes of cannabis to learn about. So before we get into the historical healing applications for the compounds after the break, before the break, would you review the, just the names of the active compounds from the abstract of, of the paper to kind of familiarize us with their names so that when we start talking about their applications, um, folks are a little familiar. Familiar with what they are?
1: Yeah. Um, so what's really interesting about the roots is they're very low in cannabinoids like THC and C B D. Um, what they contain is other compounds. So one of the main compounds we talked a lot about in the paper is called fritolin. Um, so this is found in the roots at about it as reported um, from older studies at 12.8 milligrams per kilogram. And then there's another compound called Epifridolin. Epifriedelanol, and that's about 21 uh, milligrams per kilogram. So these two compounds are triterpenoids, and um, they've been isolated from other plants. Um, they're found in many other plants, as well as cannabis. And so they've been isolated from cannabis and characterized, but no one has specifically um, studied them from cannabis, Mm. but they've taken them from other plants and done some preliminary animal experiments and shown that they have really potent anti-inflammatory activity, um, um, anti-pain, anti-redness. They can help prevent um, the influx of inflammatory cells. And so, those compounds are most likely the active compounds that are providing a lot of the anti-inflammatory activity. Um, there's also some interesting alkaloids that are in the roots called cannabis And this compound has been isolated um, from cannabis root, but there's no research on it. So we don't actually know what this compound does. And then um, another thing that was interesting is there was one report of a group uh isolating carvone which is uh, monoterpene it has it's the major uh monoterpene found in spearmint so when you smell that spearmint minty scent that's pretty much carvone you're smelling um and so they found that the root had this distinguished smell is what they said and then they went to further analyze it and found that it was carvone and um carvone's interesting because it's being studied also as an anti-inflammatory, anti-pain compound, especially with regards to like spearmint essential oil. There's a clinical trial where they're studying it uh, topically, like putting it on your skin for treating um, osteoarthritis. So we can take some of these compounds and then start put that, the story together and realize like, oh, all these compounds are playing a role. And who knows, some of these old concoctions may have well had some, i say contamination or whatever cannabinoids from other parts of the plant. So realistically, I think um, whole plant uh, formulas that include parts of the roots and the cannabinoids will work best. Um, but I think these compounds in the roots have a lot of potential to also play a role um, with helping with a variety of uh, medicinal applications, including redness, inflammation and pain.
0: Right on. <clears throat> Before we go to break, one last question. You know, uh, these these new active compounds that we're learning about, I mean, they're not new to science, but they're new to a lot of us uh, cannabis medicine folk. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're suggesting that they are something other than than cannabinoids because we're talking about them and cannabinoids. Um, it, you know, why would you say scientifically that they're not considered cannabinoids? Like Definitionally, why are they not cannabinoids? Well,
1: a cannabinoid is a unique compound that's like THC, CBD, like there's this, it's a class of structurally like unique compounds. And so these are just different, completely different compounds. So they're just, I want to clarify too, a lot of people are really confused about cannabinoids being found in other plants. Um, I saw some people talking about it on Facebook today and arguing about it. Um, And using one of Ethan's paper to justify their point, but they were actually arguing the wrong thing. So when we say cannabinoids, these compounds are specific to the cannabis plant. And that's like THC and CBD and there's many other cannabinoids. But there's compounds in other plants that act like cannabinoids and can work through the endocannabinoid system in our body. Um, But people are saying, oh, there's cannabinoids in other plants, but there aren't. So... Anyway, cannabinoids are a unique um, family of compounds that are unique to the cannabis plant, but they're not found in large amounts in the roots. Thank you.
0: That's, that's the answer I was looking for. And you took it even farther uh, along that path. You know, we had um, Dr. Russo on the show talking about how... Um, you know, his nutrition paper, right? Uh, nutrition mm-hmm. to support the endocannabinoid system. And a lot of people took that paper as you were describing that, oh, look, there's cannabinoids and all these other things. Like, well, they're not really cannabinoids in these other plants. They're just other nutritional plants that support your endocannabinoid system. So yeah, take your cannabinoids, but also take this other nutrition. And I think that's a good delineation you make.
1: Yeah, and like especially with uh, beta-caryophyllene comes up a lot because – and there's a paper that kind of is at fault here the way the title is. It's like, oh, here's a – they call it a cannabinoid, but beta-caryophyllene works through the CB2 receptor, and it works through our endocannabinoid system and can boost cannabinoids, but it is not a cannabinoid. <laughs>
0: Right, You know, just making it all very, very clear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. We're, so let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. When we get back, we're going to be talking about um, the actual health benefits of using the root ball system. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is cannabis, <clears throat> cannabis health researcher Natasha Riz. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals, too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire Episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes without adulterants. The problem with most terpene providers is that they're not sourced naturally and instead are made as a byproduct of refining petroleum. And that's so sketchy. The terpenes sold by True Terpenes are entirely different. They are certified organic, non-GMO, and food-grade. That means that they are extracted from real plant sources. There are no solvents of any kind. They are distilled only with steam. That's right, only steam. In fact, terpenes from True Terpenes are so pure that you can eat them. Not only that, but you can stack them with better results, too. What I mean is... Other companies' terpenes have got a few percent of impurities, and when you stack those terpenes to make your blend, you're adding a variety of impurities that degrade your final product. True Terpenes also have strain-specific terpenes for a wide range of cannabis strains like Durban Poison, Sunset Sherbet, and Granddaddy Purple. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. So whether you want to cup your hands to smell some beta-caryophyllene to calm down after getting too high, or if you want to dab some pinene so your lungs feel fabulous and your mind feels liberated, True Terpenes will provide you with a truly natural experience. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or whatever. True Terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose True Terpenes for a top-shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back, you are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis health researcher, Natasha Riz. So now we're getting into the heart of the topic. So the theme of the paper seems to be that historically, healers of all kinds use the root ball for a range of inflammatory issues and infections and fevers. There are so many different active ingredients and applications that I actually found it hard to create, you know, like a cogent path of questions for you. How do you prefer to talk about the medical applications in a way that people can make sense of it.
1: Yeah. Um, so I the parts that I really like to focus on are the topical applications. So putting it on your skin. Um, there's hints at various ways of using the cannabis root, including oral, even um, as a suppository, like intrarectally to help with infection. Um, but when throughout history anyway when people are using the root um orally or interactively it seems to be more for a specific purpose so like a medical purpose not necessarily like something you'd want to do every day whereas the topical applications like on the skin seem like something that, that you could use consistently so when uh, patients are or throughout history when people were taking it as an oral drink it was more for um during childbirth when they were having issues with um like they couldn't stop bleeding and so there's historical accounts in china of using um the root concoction as an oral uh, supplement to help with bleeding during uh childbirth um Whereas there's a richer history and many more accounts of cannabis root um, balms and water extractions being used on the skin. And even um, I should bring up like if anyone's working with cannabis roots, you want to be really careful of where you're sourcing the material from because cannabis is really good at phytoremediation, meaning it can suck up um, bad things from the ground. Um, And cannabis is really good at sucking up uh, iron and heavy minerals that can uh, accumulate and could be dangerous if you're using it um, for medicine. So it might be better to use roots that are grown um, through hydroponics or at least in soil that you know doesn't have a mineral contamination or a heavy metal contamination. Um, So just keep that in mind. So that might also be part of the reason why... um, taking the root in orally might be, you might have to be a little careful about it. Um, Whereas putting it on your skin, it just seems there's such a rich history of using it that way, especially for, as I mentioned several times, gout, arthritis, and joint pain. Um, But the other thing that also came up throughout the historical uh, accounts of all the hemp root use was water extraction. So We know that cannabinoids are fat soluble compounds, and so most of the time when we do extractions with cannabis flowers or other parts of the plants, we're using. Um, fats or alcohol or things to extract these fat compounds. Um, The thing that was really interesting about the roots is throughout history, it's very clear that they're using boiling water or um, some kind of heated type water extraction. Um, And so I'll go a little bit over of the different ways they're using it. One is they're drying the root and using it as a powder. Um, And so there's accounts of just using that powder as like, remixing it with water and using it, um, on like a cut or as a poultice. Um, and then there's other accounts of taking the root and shredding it. Um, that might be a bit difficult cause the roots are pretty hard. Um, and then there's other accounts where they're taking the root, cooking it in boiling water and then using that water extraction, um, either to soak, uh, like other things in and then put that topically like as a compress or they're um, taking, let me see the roots there. Oh, so they're also even taking that water extraction and like boiling it down to making almost like a, uh, like a paste or a, a sap. And then they're using other ways where they're taking even alcohol extractions or, The recipe that we used personally at home um, to process some of David's uh, cannabis roots has been actually to take a blend of fat and water and cook that in a crock pot and use that to extract fat-soluble and water-soluble compounds. And then what you do after that is you put it in the freezer, and then you um, freeze off the water, and then you can separate the fat and the water compounds and then do separate things with that. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of different things about the roots that are different than the way most people are processing, um, the cannabis plant. And so the main thing is the water extraction. And the other thing is that people are mostly using it topically versus, you know, smoking it or eating it.
0: Um, sure. That makes sense. And, and during the third set, we're going to talk a little bit more in detail about how to make those. But for the moment I want to hit on, um, you know, I think that it's interesting that, that there are all of these different procedures uh, for getting the uh, the compounds in touch with the human body. Um, but it, it's interesting that there was so much experimentation, all these different ways to essentially just get the fridolin and carvone and other um, active compounds just to touch the body, right? I mean, whether it's by b- boiling or 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 cutting it up or making a poultice, it's just like these are these are different methods to essentially do the same thing, which is get those essential active compounds against the skin or in lesser cases into the body through a drink, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so different, different, you know, healers would use different techniques based on, you know, what their personal beliefs were or what was, what was available to them. Um, one of the things that I find interesting about the, um, uh, this approach, too, is you know you 've talked about a wide range of ailments that it helps with you know gout, arthritis, joint pain, hemorrhaging from um, um, after pregnancy fever i mean this is a this is a pretty wide range, and normally, when we 're talking about cannabinoid medicine we 're like oh it 's because it supports the endocannabinoid system, which is the body 's master regulator and balances so many systems that that you know it all helps the ECS and then the ECS takes care of rebalancing everything and then you get all this relief. But that's not what we're talking about this time. And so what's different with this from what it sounds like is that we're actually trying to get these particular active compounds for what they uniquely do to our body's system themselves. So the Carvone is doing one thing and the Fridolin is doing one thing. Instead of how we normally think about cannabinoid medicine which is oh it all turns on or off something in the ECS
1: yeah and I mean these the ECS is so like it's everywhere around our bodies so I'm I would be surprised if these compounds weren't somehow targeting um, the endocannabinoid system. And we can kind of think of um, inflammation pathways in the way we think of the endocannabinoid system. So when we say something's affecting inflammation, that's a very complex process. There's many cells. There's many types of inflammation. Some types of inflammation are good. Some types are bad. Um, and then there's early modulators of inflammation that I like to think of as like cells coming in with machine guns where they're just you know trying to take out every kind of invader but are also causing a lot of damage to the host Mm -hmm. Um, and so when we're saying that these compounds are targeting inflammation it's not only bringing down redness and like swelling and it's also bringing down pain um, and As most people know, inflammation is an underlying mechanism for many, many different diseases. So even if you have a condition that there may be no cure for, um, if you can get the inflammation under control, um, your symptoms will feel better. So even just targeting some of these pathways, we're going to get, I mean, seemingly like, oh, it does so many things. Is this actually real? But all of these um, underlying mechanisms play roles in many, many different diseases. So we can say something like skin burns and hard tumors and fever may not seem like they're related, but they could all be a part of the same condition. And so if you're targeting, it's kind of like pulling the string of the yarn ball. <laughs> you know, you if you get the the inflammatory process is under control. The whole um, host will start just feeling better and kind of the body will work better and be able to sort itself out. Even if we look at something like modulating stress, like, so I work a lot with patients with um, inflammatory bowel diseases, so Crohn's and colitis, and these are gastrointestinal conditions um, that inflammation and pain p- pay, play a big role. Um, but stress and psychological um just how you're feeling about your body plays a huge role in the disease. And when patients are in a state of stress and anxiety, their body doesn't work as well, and so it can't work as good. And so even just getting that stress um, under control, sometimes that can help get the inflammation under control, and then all of a sudden the patient starts getting less ulcers. And so I think we have to even take these like stress relief um, seems like such a simple thing but it's it's such a i don't know an underlying mechanism for so many diseases that if we can get basic things like stress inflammation just things that really affect everyone and have highs and lows throughout the day but um there's so many nutritional and lifestyle factors we can do including
0: cannabis right on that makes a lot of sense you know so often when working with a cannabis patient, we find out that, yeah, the cannabis helped them, but actually once they started sleeping properly, uh, they started getting better just because they were getting proper sleep. You know, it's we gotta take care of these basic systems. You know, one of the things I like about how your paper is laid out is that, you know, at the beginning you go through an explanation of, you know, that gives context and the different active compounds we're working with, but then you go section by section on um, the different ailments that you can get relief from. And before we move on, I want to make sure that we hit a couple that we haven't hit so far, because, you know, we've we've talked about, you know, infection and fever and gout, but, but um, let's, and, and uh, postpartum uh, hemorrhaging, but let's talk um, about um, uh, a sexually transmitted disease. Why don't you hit on that?
1: Yeah, so this, again, we kind of hesitated to put this one in because there was one quote to it, but... It was interesting, and I have the paper here, so I mean, I'll read it a little bit. But So there was one report of cannabis root being used to help um, with gonorrhea. So in the 17th century, a German-born botanist um, employed by the Dutch East Indian Company, I think it's interesting to get some context of who these people were. Um, so anyway, he the quote, Says that um, the Moors took the root of the male or the flower-bearing plant, and they used it to feed and who those who were held fast, unclean, but with gonorrhea. I mean, these quotes, the wording's a little awkward. The old English is really a mess, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And so sometimes you're always like, is that what they meant? So basically, we took that from this account. They were eating cannabis root to help with gonorrhea, but it's really unclear from this account how it was prepared. Um, So yeah, we just had it in there as a quote saying this... Because I, I feel like um, when we make, and Ethan was really um, a good uh, mentor for putting this paper together, because he was saying even these accounts that may, you know, have a little comment about, it's our responsibility to put it together. So if someone does decide to research that further, it's like, hey, that it, there was an account of that and someone was using that. And as we know with the cannabis plant, it does so many different things that sometimes there's this condition that's seemingly out there that you're like, oh, does it do that? And then you find out that it actually can help with that condition. So, yeah, it was a uh, interesting... Quote that came up, so we decided to include it.
0: Well, I think that this paper really does open a lot of doors, right? Because it's not like this is the final word on any of this. What you're really doing is opening a door to new directions in research by giving, you know, a historical survey of how you know older cultures have used the root ball for for a wide range of things. And I I think that's one of the great things about the paper. Uh, another one I want to hit on is uh, the GI track because you know we all know that um, cannabis is is used by uh, um, anti um, mimetic you know to stop people from vomiting um, but also you're you're suggesting the the roots can be used as a you know essentially a, a tummy ton- a tummy tonic that would help a whole range of ailments
1: yeah and it's interesting because the accounts with um the root bomb in in or sorry the root ball in reference to um, gastrointestinal activity is actually being used to induce vomiting. Um, so yeah I'll read a little bit. Um, the cannabis roots have been used to protect against vomiting um, but also to induce vomiting so um, in Chile, hemp roots have been used as a purgative um, and so the way they were using it, they were mixing it pulverized with wine and recommending it for weaknesses and pains of the stomach. Um, And so that's really interesting to me, again, because I know more about um, how THC and CBD, the cannabinoids, can affect uh, the gut and play a big role, especially in inflammation and in helping with nausea and vomiting. Although we also know that um, there's a condition called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome where some people respond badly to high amounts of cannabis and it actually can induce vomiting. Um, so, yeah, I think this whole system and the way cannabis can interact with our gastrointestinal system, um, it's by module. So it can induce things and it can also suppress things. And it's all dose dependent and also dependent on the person's constitution. So, yeah, I think it, there's more research that's needed to be done. Um, but, yeah, it's interesting that the roots also seem to have some gastrointestinal activity also. I like that word you just used by
0: module that's a new one on <laughs> me thank you for that <laughs> So um so one of the things that that uh is curious is that, you know, the, the survey of the research talks about mostly about, you know, old school healers. Um, but then, you know, the, the, the last section of the paper really focuses on Fridolin and, and it's kind of like once removed, right? Because people have not been doing organized studies on root balls in modern time, but Fridolin, which is in the root ball, there has been research, um, uh, taking place. And so um, under under that flag, would you talk a little bit about um, uh, uh, how Friedlin impacts both cardiac activity and estrogenic activity?
1: Sure. Um, so yeah, with um, estrogenic activity, this is still an area that more research is needed. But because there were the mentions of cannabis root, uh, being used orally during pregnant or sorry, during, um, to help with childbirth and, and, bleeding. We were trying to figure out some rationale why that would be. And so we found a little bit of evidence that, um, Fritoline may have some estrogenic activity, um, when it's been isolated from other plants. And this one plant that's really rich in Fritoline, um, sorry, while well, I butcher the name, um, Ciscus I'm not actually sure what this plant is, but it's an edible plant found in hotter parts of India and um, West Africa. And this plant is documented in Ayurveda um, for its medicinal use in gout, syphilis, um, venereal disease, and also as an aphrodisiac. And it's really rich in fritaline. Um And then there's also another uh, plant where Fritaline was isolated And they did some work with uh, rat models um, who didn't have their ovaries. And they found that the Fridolin section, when they fed this to the animals, it improved their sexual behavior. And they found that this was related to estrogen activity with an increase in uterine weight and a rise in serum estrogen. So again, these are very preliminary studies, um, but it hints that there could be something more going on. Um, And then the other one, oh, you brought up was the cardiac activity. Yeah, so this, again, was another place we had a bit of issues with because there is some um, confusion where... There was a report in the Journal of American Medical Association, JAMA, um, thinking that the cannabis roots might be an issue. Um, And so the way we spun it was, throughout history, there's no mentions of any cardiac activity in cannabis roots. But then there's this 1971 report in the um, medical journal. And so I'll just read what we wrote. It says... In 1971, Roger published an account in JAMA recollecting his physician uncle using Indian hemp roots to treat uh, edema in 1931. And then this prompted an investigation later on by this other researcher um, who infused cannabis roots with whiskey into guinea pig hearts. And what happens is the heart rates dropped from 240 to 60. So they're saying, oh, this caused the heart to go slower. And so they were kind of concerned about this and then, but the issue is that we think, or Ethan thought anyway, that Roger may this um, account from 1971, he may have mistaken the cannabis root for Indian hemp, um, which is another plant because this other plant does have some heart uh, related issues. And so, Anyway, the long story short, um, we concluded that this report was likely untrue um, and there actually is no actual toxicity of cannabis roots. Um, and then, again, this short, sort of confusion is avoidable by using proper Latin names. Um, so, again, this stuff needs to be clarified and more research needs to be done um, and even making sure that there are no dangers but throughout history, in the quotes, we didn't come across any mentions of
0: cannabis and heart issues, so it's so exciting though, right? Because like, it's almost like we're finding another cannabis plant. Like we love cannabis. We love all the oils that we can get out of the trichomes. And and we're just beginning the research on that. And then all of a sudden, now we're talking about root balls with an entire different set of active compounds. And it's like, oh, wow, look, there's, you know what, there's nine different sections in the paper. And it's like, wow, there's, there's tons of room for research in each of the nine nine sections. It just opens it up. So, so this is a call, out to all you citizen scientists out there to uh to to get on it um after the break we're going to talk about um how to do some of these preparations with as much of instruction as we can pull out of natasha so uh stay with us we're going to take a short break and be right back you're listening to shaping fire and my guest today is cannabis health researcher natasha riz If you grow cannabis with sunshine, you can often feel limited by the seasonal cycle. You want to grow sustainably and save money, so you use as little electricity as possible. But if you haven't studied or implemented light deprivation techniques into your greenhouse, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. By incorporating light deprivation solutions into your greenhouse, you can often add two or three additional growing cycles to your year. When you pencil out the financial benefit of those additional cycles, you'll realize why commercial-scale light deprivation technology is remaking the cannabis industry. What used to be done by pulling tarps over hoop houses has been scaled up over the last few years in such a way that it's become mechanized, easy, and affordable to even small-scale commercial cannabis operations. Forever Flowering Greenhouses is the industry leader in light deprivation, greenhouse design and operation for the commercial cannabis industry. Their team of greenhouse experts have been in the fields of Northern California for decades, and they're now building greenhouses for commercial cannabis companies across the country. If you are new to light depth and growing in greenhouses, I encourage you to go back to Shaping Fire episode 13 with guest Eric Branstad of Forever Flowering. I talk with Eric about the importance of intelligent greenhouse management as well as the huge financial benefit of incorporating light depth techniques. There are so many aspects of utilizing a greenhouse that can go wrong. From temperature and airflow to light depth and workflow, Forever Flowering will help you produce crop after crop of well-cared-for flowers. They can help you retrofit your existing greenhouse with light depth and other modern systems at a level that fits your budget. If you're just starting out, Forever Flowering can help you plan and build your new greenhouse so that you get started on the right foot. The cannabis business has enough risks without trying to go it alone with your greenhouse. Contact Forever Flowering Greenhouses to partner with folks who have an indisputable reputation as knowledgeable and easy to work with. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash FFG to find out more. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you'll like audiobooks too. Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, tell you stories, and teach you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer that I want to tell you about. Right now, they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you'll get a free audiobook. Straight up. You can listen to it on your mobile device, computer, or download it and listen to it, you know, like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to just check out the service for free. And the service is pretty great. There are whole sections on permaculture, sci-fi, history, um, biography, hell, you can even listen to a book about card counting in blackjack whatever. It's all pretty rad. So that's the deal. Your first book is free. It's easy to sign up. It's easy to quit. And their online library of free books is pretty incredible. So just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more, or just click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is cannabis health researcher, Natasha Riz. So, you know, so far in the show, we have talked about why the root ball is so healthy and all the different ways that healers of all sorts have been using it, um, you know, where they live over the years but you know there's not really a lot of information in the archives of how they actually made the preparations so um i know that i'm going to be asking you questions natasha that you are probably haven't been provided answers for but but you know we all know that that after Growers are hearing this show that they're going to be doing some experimentation with root balls come this fall because, you know, who wouldn't? And so, um, I want to go through four of the preparations that are talked about, um, in your paper and just give me the best. You know the best information that you have gleaned, and I understand that there's going to be some some vacuum there, and and we'll just tell people to to try it. So so here, so here are here are a handful of questions that you may not know the answer to. So um, so the the main one that I was attracted to was the decoction by boiling. And, you know, the idea of boiling something that seems easy enough, but, but just generally, I'm curious from you, you know, when you boil it, do you cut it up into slices first? How much water might I use? How long might I boil it? And then when I'm done, do I want to reduce the water so that the, the, the finished liquid agent is actually more dense?
1: Yeah, those are all great questions. Um, and I, am anticipating there's going to be so many interesting concoctions coming up of different ways to prepare them. Um, so the ways that we've tried is first off, cutting the roots is very difficult. Um, we had like, they're very hard. And so I still haven't figured out the best way to process them into pieces. So at this point in time, we've just been breaking them as best we can, um, I've also heard someone suggest putting them in liquid nitrogen and then crushing them that way would be a good way to try it, but I haven't and played also around with fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, so that might be the solution to that uh, issue. Um, and then basically putting as much water and root together. I mean, the more, the better to just, you have to like even a one-to-one if it possible. Um, and so, again, when you're making water extractions, there's issues of um, microbial or bacterial or mold growth because as soon as you have water in a compound, the shelf stability isn't as great. So that's one of the reasons I haven't played as much with the water extractions. But I think if you were going to do a water extraction, you would want to, like you said, um, concentrate it down after. And so that there was reports of people doing that where they would take yeah, the roots in the water I mean, chopped or as chopped up as you could get them, um, and then infusing that in the water. And then again, what are the proper temperatures? What is the proper timeline? I can't give much suggestion to that, except the throat history was boiling, so I'm guessing it's going to be a heavier boil. I don't know what the... I'd have to look into what the exact temperature time points for compounds like Fritoline and those things to potentially be breaking down. Um, I'm not sure what that is, but... And then you'd also have to experiment with how long are you boiling it for because when a lot of people make their even um, like their cannabis flower infusions in coconut oil or something, sometimes they're cooking that for a thirty-minute infusion or they're doing a three-day infusion, right? So mm-hmm. I think depending on the length of infusion you're going to do, you're going to extract different compounds. Um, And again, there's water extractions, there's fat extractions. And then I haven't experimented with alcohol extractions yet, but I think that's going to be a really nice way to bring out both the fat and the water soluble compounds from the roots. Um, And then, yeah, I think once you get either your root powder or your root extract or, the water or the fat e- extraction, or you're boiling that down after you've done the water extraction to get really like a gum tar resin. Um, then I think that will be your your compound that you're then going to have to incorporate into other bases, so like your base cream, for instance. And like when working with cannabinoids, um, there's many different things you have to consider when you're putting making topicals, and a big one is um, absorption. So With the fat-soluble cannabinoids, a lot of them stay in the surface of the skin, and that's why a lot of people like them is because they don't go systemically. But there's also um, permeation enhancers and compounds you can add to your blends that can help boost absorption and maybe get some of these compounds um, into your body and systemically. So, of course, when you're making these hemp or the cannabis root um, concoctions and you're putting them into your final blends, those are things have to consider is do you want this blend to stay on the surface of your skin or do you want it to absorb into your skin um and so that will depend what kind of formulation you put and then um again you're also going to have to consider what kind of um what's your target for this for this formula are you is it for um a sore? Is it for a burn? Is it for inflammation and pain? Um, is it for just, you know, a hand cream because your hands are dry? Because um, then that will depend again what kind of blend you're going to put together and how you're going to. I always like to think of who my end user is before I make a formula um, just because if it's nice, it smells good, it absorbs good, but it's not for the right application, no one's going to use it. So I think the same thing with the roots is there's many different ways to prepare it. And then again, are you going to make, like, if you're concerned about drug testing and having THC in these compounds, um, the roots are nice because they wouldn't test for THC or any of these other compounds. So you might want to just make your root blends alone or if you want them to work even better i would add the cannabis flowers in there too because of course the cannabinoids and thc cbd those are going to make um everything work a bit better for topicals especially um
0: so yeah so we talked about that i'm trying to think i think Oh, I, I think it's, um I I've I just realized while you were talking that I'm going to have to find a lab that actually tests for Friedelin because I bet you that my, you know, my local cannabis lab, that's probably not one that they're checking for all the time. I'm going to have to check in with them and find somewhere because now I'm going to, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm devising these little citizen science tests that I want to do myself this fall with the root balls. And I bet you that I'm not going to be the only one. Um so let's let's talk about poultice a little bit. So um we got the decoction by boiling pretty clearly. You know, uh uh poultice I think the only time I ever actually come across that anymore is like in like survival movies, you know, <laughs> where you know some some ancient, you know, Yoda healer, you know, takes some some, you know, moss or something off the ground and and then they put it against this and then it's magically healed in the next scene you know um so but but you know how would you actually make a poultice out of the the root ball
1: um so a poultice is basically just like a mash of herbs that you're putting together in something like uh like cheesecloth or one of those um like uh even just like a tablecloth like a cloth that the liquid can then permeate through And so um, it would be similar to how you're doing, like, even what you could do is you could put a root mass in there and kind of close it off in, like, a dishcloth, tie it up at the top, um, and then you could, like, boil that in water, and then that poultice, you could then remove it, kind of squeeze out the excess, and then put it on topically. So that would be more for, like, spot treatments. Like, say you had a, a rolled ankle, or your knee was hurting, or you had a wound somewhere, then you'd want like, and a poultice isn't necessarily the most, um, what's the word, like convenient, because it's a big, mass of plant you're <laughs> in this concoction that you have to hold on to your thing. So it's more of a home treatment, I guess. Um, but what's cool about, again, with the poultice, you can combine other herbs and other plants. So again, what your, who your end user is and what the condition is will depend on what herbs and what plants you put together um, when you make your poultice.
0: It sounds like one of the common issues amongst all of these is just breaking down the root, right? To get it to, you know, to, to, to either cut it or mash it or, or put it on the cheese grater or whatever you're going to do, getting it Sm- into smaller pieces is going to be the the challenge. the The next one that's in the paper is pulverized and mixed with wine. So tell us a little bit about how that would look.
1: Yeah, so I haven't experimented with that one at all, but I'm guessing it would be similar to getting... And again, we could talk about, um, are we talking about older root? Or are we talking about younger root? Because I think there's another whole spectrum of um, playing with the roots and trying to figure out different uh, medical applications. Because if you're using an early root, um, I mean, we'd have to look at how these different compounds are developing because they're not even really saying in the papers, like how old um, the root was when it was analyzed. So If we were using younger root, it would be easier to break up and um, mash and make some of these concoctions, but maybe it doesn't have the compounds you're looking for, whereas the older root might be harder to work with, but might have a different profile of compounds, so... Again, those types of analysis need to be done um, and alcohol why would be a nice um, extraction um, base is because it can bring out all the fat soluble and the water soluble compounds and it doesn't have the risk of um, microbial like bacteria or mold growth to the same extent that just water does so. It, you can get some better um, shelf stability if you're using alcohol versus
0: water and, and wine generally just makes everything better so, <laughs> yeah especially with a bitter medicine. so the <laughs> the last one is raw juice and I was just imagining if 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 we're trying to struggle for what to break it down what what a cannabis root ball would do to my macerating juice or God help us. Um, <laughs> but it, it seems to me that maybe uh, maybe an apple crusher would uh, would might be more the appropriate tool for ah. the job than something in the kitchen.
1: Yeah. When I saw the juice, I was, I was same thing. Like how I, <laughs> don't put that in your juicer. Yeah. Um, so again, I'm wondering if they're using younger roots, um, because they've got some more, uh, give to them versus the older roots, which would, I mean, I don't think they were using juicers back in the ancient days. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe though. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, um, that one I haven't played with at all. So that's, readers please
0: give me your uh or listeners please uh,
1: <laughs> let me know how that one goes
0: <laughs> yeah totally i think that's one of the great things about both your paper and the show today is really um this is not a show about having all the answers this is about uh, this is a show about all the new questions and i think that's really exciting um thanks so much for joining me on the show today natasha this is really groundbreaking work and uh i bet you there's a lot of people who are listening who are as excited to play with root balls as i am now
1: Yeah, and I'm really excited to hear about all these experiments and uh,
0: I'm excited to see how people uh, come up with some new treatments
1: and always harnessing the, the cannabis plant to help us.
0: Right on. So, so if you want to read the paper, you can go ahead and uh, go to the shapingfire.com website. There's a link to the paper uh, right there on the page for this podcast episode. And you could also find out more information on Natasha Riz at www.rizremy.com, And that's R Y Z R E mi.com. and also natasha's really um uh present on twitter and you can uh follow her on twitter at at tosh riz so that's T A S H r-y-z you can find more episodes of the shaping fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on apple itunes stitcher and google play if you enjoyed the show we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too on the shaping fire website you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango